Back when I was uh, younger, I used to enjoy staying up late at night more than I do now. And so unwisely, oftentimes before uh, the Sunday, I would watch Saturday Night Live on television. And if you've seen Saturday Night Live, you know it varies in quality from season to season very greatly. But I had the good benefit of seeing some very good seasons. And one of the uh, skits that they often would perform uh, centered around a woman called Debbie Downer. Do you remember maybe Rachel Dratch was the name of the actress who played her? But Debbie Downer's role was, much as her name implies, to bring down everybody's good time. One of the skits I remember, they all travel as a family down to Disney World, and they're all excited, and one of the people at the table says, I can't wait to go visit Epcot Center. I've been practicing how to say hello in Korean. And then Debbie Downer says, oh, I, I guess you didn't hear about the train crash in Korea yesterday, and hundreds were killed. And then, of course, you hear sad trombone. Another one, they're sitting down at the Thanksgiving table, and everybody's saying, oh, this is beautiful. And they bring in the roasted turkey, and everybody says, this is so fantastic. And she says, well, I guess you haven't heard that thousands of people get sick from salmonella every Thanksgiving from undercooked turkey. The point is, is that every time somebody's trying to have a good time, she points out something sad that brings everybody down, and at the end, they're all frustrated and asking, why do I invite this person over to Thanksgiving dinner or to come with me to Disney World? Now, I mention that because today we start the season of Lent, and I think if we're really honest with ourselves, and we start this season, if we're really honest with ourselves, sometimes a little voice in the back of our mind kind of makes us believe that God is a kind of celestial Debbie Downer. Isn't it the case that many times God uh, tells us when we want to do something that seems like a lot of fun, God comes to us and says, don't do it. I'd like to speak to you today, however, about temptation, because I believe that our lesson today that we have specifically from the gospel, Matthew chapter 4, where Jesus is tempted by the devil in the desert, but also the temptation faced in Genesis chapter 3 by Adam and Eve actually speak to us an awful lot and help us to get over misconceptions about why God says no to some things. It not only tells us Jesus understands what it's like and sympathizes with our temptations, he's not just some guy who sits and says, don't do this, uh, don't do as I do, do as I say. Jesus is somebody who understands it. I'd like to suggest that even more than that, not only do we have a great high priest who sympathizes with our every need, we're also, I think, given an insight as to why it is that God says sometimes no to things that we really want and the value of holding on to what God says even when inside of our hearts we're tempted to do something. Now, you heard the story, and I think it's a fairly simple story, so I won't rehash it, but the basics of it is, is that Jesus goes into the desert to spend time with God, to be closer through fasting and devotion, and the devil comes and wants to tempt him and says there's lots of things that you could do and, and why don't you go and do them? And Jesus says no to each of them. Now, each of these things in the specifics are things that are alone to Jesus. I don't know about you, but I've never had the devil appear to me and say, come and worship me and I'll give you lots of things. There's that old story about uh, Robert Johnson, the blues musician. He shows up at the crossroads in the middle of the night and the devil appears to him and says, give me your soul and I will help you become a world famous guitarist. And the theory goes, he becomes a famous blues musician and uh, the devil tricks him because as he's playing in a bar one night, somebody stabs him to death, and he dies very young. But of course, his fame lives on after his death. You know how true that is. Never happened to me, though. Certainly, uh, no, uh, nobody has ever tempted me. 
to uh, throw myself off a cliff on the assumption that angels are going to swoop up and protect me. And nobody has ever come to me and said, hey, uh, here's a, you know, a sponge, turn it into sponge cake. Uh, that's never happened to me either, right? So it'd be tempting for us to look at this and sort of say, well, these are not at all applicable to our lives. But I think we'd have a mistake if we saw that. In fact, John tells us at the end of his gospel that everything is written down in the gospel. Jesus did many more things, but why have I written these? To give you instruction, that you would know who Jesus is and follow him. This has given us instruction, not just about what Jesus did, but also about the temptations we face. Because I think if you look closer at this gospel lesson, what you find is that Jesus' temptations actually have something in common. The most difficult temptations we face as normal, mortal human beings. Because what Jesus is tempted by in each of these situations is that the devil doesn't tempt him with a bad thing. The devil tempts him with a good thing that Jesus has every right to take. And those are the things that are the hardest for us to say no to. Now what do I mean by Jesus uh, being tempted by good things and that he has every right to take? Let's look at the first example in Matthew chapter 4 about what Jesus is tempted with. Jesus fasted 40 days and 40 nights, and afterward he was famished. Understandably, 40 days without food. It's hard for most of us to go a day without food, right? Jesus, after 40 days, is famished, completely understandably. The tempter came and said to him, If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. You know what's interesting about this temptation? There's nothing wrong with Jesus eating. In fact, Jesus uh, celebrates banquets. When we see in John's Gospel the first miracle we're told Jesus does, He's at a banquet, a wedding banquet, a feast, which goes on in Israelite culture, would go on for days and days. In fact, so great is the feasting that they've run out of wine. I mean, and these are big uh, jugs of wine that have been all sucked up by everybody who's been enjoying themselves quite a bit. And then Jesus turns water, you know, more than 100 gallons probably, and turns it into wine. Of course, we learn uh, a little bit later that, that Jesus himself not only does a miracle about wine, when 5,000 people are gathered in Matthew's gospel and they're gathered to listen to Jesus and they're in a desolate place and his disciples say you should send them away so they can go buy food in the villages because we can't feed them, Jesus says, well, what do we have? Why don't we feed them? They bring a few loaves and, and Jesus says, feed them with this. And I'm sure the disciples are thinking, what, give everybody a molecule of bread? That's not going to work. But what does Jesus do? He says, hold my beer and watch this. He blesses the bread. He feeds 5,000 people. That's not very different than what the devil's tempting him to do. Here's a person who takes two loaves of bread and turns it into 5,000 pieces of bread for people to eat. That's not really anything that Jesus isn't allowed to do, and food is a good thing. Look at the next thing that the devil tempts him with. If you're the son of God, throw yourself down. It's written, he will command his angels concerning you. On their hands they will bear you up, so you'll not dash your foot against a stone. What is he saying to Jesus? You are God's beloved son. If you're really the Messiah, you know God's made promises to you. I mean, think about the promise we just heard. We sung today in Psalm 32, a little bit earlier in the service. He says, uh, Psalm 32, verse 6, that all the faithful offer prayer to you at a time of distress. The rush of mighty waters shall not reach them. You're a hiding place for me. You preserve me from trouble. You surround me with glad cries of deliverance. He says to his faithful, look, God's going to protect you. And to underline this, the devil quotes scripture himself and says, look, you're the Messiah, and the scriptures that you believe in, that your heavenly Father caused to be written by the power of the Holy Spirit, says, if you are, 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 are going to be falling, the angels will lift you up. You won't even dash your foot against a stone. You've got every right to be protected by God, doesn't he? And the last one, 
course, he asks him to do something wicked by worshiping the devil, but what he's offering him is something Jesus has the right to. On holy days, we always say the Nicene Creed. And what do we say? We say, you know, true God of true God, of one being with the Father. We say of Jesus that together with the Father and the Holy Spirit, you're worshipped and glorified. What is it we recognize in Jesus every time we gather on Sunday? We sing praises, we worship Jesus, we name him to be the Lord. And as we gather here today, there are other people in the world, in China, in Nigeria, in France, in Argentina, in Australia, probably in Antarctica even as we speak. People are praising the name of Jesus and worshiping him across all the nations. Jesus has every right to be praised and worshiped by all the kingdoms. The devil is offering him things that he absolutely has the right to do. And that's what makes the temptation so difficult. And if we're honest with ourselves, where the temptations is most difficult for us is when we are being tempted to have something that we know isn't actually a bad thing in itself. And maybe you're tempted to murder people, but I'm not usually. I'll tell you where the temptations come. They come in things where a little voice says in the back of your mind, look, it's not going to hurt. You can do this. You know, one of the struggles I've had often in my life, and I'm particularly struggling because I'm, as you know, uh, I've applied to the military, and it looks like uh, things are moving finally. I'll probably have to do basic training in, in September coming up, and so I know, man, i got to get in better shape. So what happens when uh, it's movie night in the Silverthorn household and my wife puts out uh, a bowl of chips? <laughs> dun, dun, dun. Here she comes. Temptress, be gone. Away from me. <laughs> oh, yeah, well. What is telling me to eat them is, is the, the, all the saturated fats. They're saying, Stephen, Stephen. Eating one of these chips isn't going to hurt you. And it's right. Eating a chip isn't going to hurt me at all. Or think about a person who maybe more seriously struggles with addiction, right? You go to a party and you know, you know you've struggled with this and a person says, uh, do you want to have a drink? That's the voice saying in the back of your mind, you know, one drink won't hurt. And you're right. One drink won't hurt. Or maybe, you know, something more serious, right? Like maybe you're you're, you're interested in dating, and you hear this person, you know, this man's a, a, a handsome, uh, but he's a cad. He's got this reputation for being charismatic, but a love and leave him kind of person. You think, well, he asked me out on a date. What, what's the harm in that? Well, probably a date won't hurt, will it? But of course, we, we always know, right, what happens. That one chip, why we shouldn't eat one chip is not because the chip is bad, but because we know we'll finish off the bowl. Why does an addict not have one drink? Because they know that after they have one drink, something is unlocked inside them and they're going to have a half a dozen more. Why is it that you don't go on a date with this charming cad? Because you know very well it's not going to be a date, but it's going to end up you doing something you regret very much. So oftentimes that voice comes in the back of our mind telling us something that's quite true, but only half true. It tells us this is a good thing that you have every right to do. What it ignores is the other half that this is something that may destroy you. This is really underlined in the first lesson we heard today in the temptation that happens to Adam and Eve. You've probably heard this story many times, but it's worth retelling because when we look at it, it's tempting again for us to say, here's some charming story set off in, in Eden somewhere. But of course, what happens? What happens are things that I think are common to every human temptation. <clears throat> The serpent said to the woman in chapter 3 of Genesis, Did God say you shall not eat from any tree in the garden? The woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees of the garden. 
But God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the middle of the garden, nor shall you touch it, or you shall die. But the serpent said to the woman, you will not die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened. You'll be like God, knowing good and evil. And so when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate, and she also gave some to her husband, who was with her, and he ate. You know, what we may miss in this passage is how many true words the serpent really says. Just asking an honest question, did he really say you couldn't eat any of the true fruit of the tree? Eve gives an honest answer. Well, of course we can eat whatever it is we want except for this one. What does the serpent say? Then he says, you know, um, God knows. You eat of it, your eyes will be open. You'll be like God, knowing good and evil. And of course they do. A little bit later, they open their eyes and they suddenly realize I'm naked. What is it that Eve says to herself? She says, the tree's good for food, delight to the eyes, the tree's desire to make one wise, all true things. Yet what happens after she eats it? They're ashamed. They weave together fig leaves and they hide from their maker. What's going on here? The devil sows doubt here. Where the real problem is, is that the real thing he is doing, and not really saying is, he's asking them the question, do you really believe God loves you? And when he says to do something or not do something, he's doing it because he has your best interests at heart. He sows doubt and makes them say, no, actually, maybe God doesn't. What does the devil start off with his first request? Did he say you can't have any fun at all? No, no, he didn't say I can't have any fun at all. He just said I can't have fun with this tree. Huh. Well, well I guess that's something, right? And he says, well, you're not going to die. They didn't. They didn't drop dead as soon as they ate it. But what did they do? Death enters the world because death, spiritually, is being cut off from our Creator. And you will become wise. You will see something absolutely true. They do see things they didn't see before, but here's the problem. They weren't ready for it. The problem is not that any of these things are bad. The problem is, these people are not ready for it, and God said you're not ready for it, and that's why I say no. It's like your 16-year-old uh, who just got her license and says, give me the keys, I want to go out and, and, and go visit my friends, and you say, no, you, you can't do it. And all she thinks is, I have the right to drive, I have my license. And so what happens if she grabs those keys and wraps the minivan around a telephone pole? It's not because you don't have the right to drive. It's because I, as an experienced parent who've been driving for 30 years, know how difficult it is, how the conditions are today, and I say no to you. And what do you ask? You're asked, do you believe the greater wisdom of my parents or not? And the same voice always comes up in the back of your mind. Do they really love me? Do they really understand me? Do they really want what's best for me? That's exactly what the devil keeps tempting Jesus with. If you really are the Son of God and God really values you as his Son, if you are the Messiah, if you are really God's anointed one, he is sowing doubt in Jesus' mind about God's love for him. But there's something wonderful about these two passages being paired, not just because they're examples of temptation, but also because of what St. Paul says about Jesus. He says Jesus is the second Adam, the new Adam. Where Adam was immature and refused to listen to what God said, Jesus listens to what God says and says, away with me, away with you, Satan, because... God has said it, and it doesn't really matter why. Of course, Jesus knows and trusts that God says no at this moment because it's not the time. 
When it comes to the food, what's the first thing that happens, we're told, in Matthew's Gospel after Jesus is tempted? So the moment the devil leaves, what are we told? Verse 11, chapter 4. The devil left him and suddenly angels came and waited on him. The moment the devil leaves, God sends angels and feeds Jesus. What happens when the devil says, uh, you know, throw yourself uh, off this this cliff or this, this temple pinnacle? We find in Luke's gospel something really, really clear. We find uh, right afterwards, although Matthew doesn't include it, Luke's gospel after this says, the very next thing that happens, Jesus visits Nazareth, he preaches a sermon, and people are so angry at his sermon, and I think I got it bad when somebody makes a negative comment. The people grab Jesus and want to throw him off a cliff, and then God miraculously intervenes. Jesus walks out of their midst. How often do you see that? An angry mob wanting to kill somebody, and then they just all let go and walk them off. Why? Even more profoundly, it points towards the time when Jesus, hanging on the cross, says, Into your hands, O Lord, I commit my spirit, and he breathes up his last. And what happens? God does not let his holy one suffer decay, but instead raises him up on the third day. We find that Jesus, tempted by the devil to test God in some petulant, uh, sullen, teenagery, childish kind of way, I want to prove it, instead waits until the time comes when he says, The ultimate test. When you tell me to give my spirit to you and cast myself into your hands, I'll do it. And what happens? God does not fail him, but raises him up. And of course, what happens after that? Forty days later, we find Jesus, just like 40 days tempted in the wilderness, 40 days after his resurrection, God raises him up and seats him at the right hand of the Father. The book of Revelation in chapter 4 and 5 is such a wonderful throne scene where the lamb that was slain enters into the throne room of God And I think that this is showing symbolically what's happening at Jesus' ascension. All of the creatures around the throne, the angels, the people from every nation gathered and fall down and worship and give praise and honor to the Lamb. Jesus knows he is due these things, but he is willing to take them in God's good time and not in the time that he wants them. That, I think, is the strong message for us. When we are tempted... It's not enough for us to ask, is this a good thing? Is this an acceptable thing in theory? Of course, it may very well be. Where the temptation really comes is whether you listen to that voice that says, do you believe that God really says this because he loves you? You need to remind yourself when you're being tempted, God loves me. He wants what is good for me. And so, although it is difficult, and although I cannot see right at the moment, my heart does not feel like doing it, I will say no to this thing because I believe God more than I believe that little boy. That's the first thing we do when we're tempted. I'd say the second thing, though, is to always ask, is this something that will help me be more of what God wants me to be? And these are often the real temptations that come, right? You know, one of the things I find as a parent has always been difficult is when your kids want your attention and you just don't want to give it, right? Here's a simple example, you know, that often happens. I'm tired at the end of the day and I got to go in and make supper. And then my kids are like, can you play with me? And can you do this? Can you do that? And what's the voice always saying? I deserve some downtime. Yeah, of course I deserve some downtime. Here's the question. Will the downtime that I have be something that helps me become more of what God wants me to be? My child more of what God wants her to be? Or is it something that I'm using it as an excuse to prevent me from being the person that God wants me to be? 
It's also true when it comes to major choices. Maybe you, you're offered a promotion, a new job, and you think, well, it could use my talents better. It could give me more money, and I could always use more of that. And you think there's nothing wrong with having your talents used and more money, but it may very well be that you haven't asked the question, is this going to be, at the end of my career, shaping me to become more of the person God wants me to be or less? Will I be a better husband if I choose this? Will I be a better mother if I choose this? Ask not just, will it bring me good things, but will it make me what God wants me to be? Jesus always asks, not, is this something that will be fun or that I have the right to, but will this serve the mission God has given to me? So when we face temptation, remember, God gives us rules, God gives us commands, not because he's a jerk. Jesus understands our temptation. He knows what it's like to be mortal and to be tempted. But he gives us these things because he loves us. And secondly, to ask yourself not just as whether this thing is a good thing, but to ask, is this something that will help me complete the life mission God has given to me? God does love you. He does have good plans for you. During this Lenten season, find ways to remind yourself of it. And remember that saying no to what is bad is not meant to ruin your fun. Instead, it is meant to make you the person God made you to be. And that is the greatest gift that God can give us.